1: Welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry.
2: And I'm Mary Beth.
1: In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. In this case, guests.
2: <laughs> Ooh, this week, our guests are writer-director Alexander Burrell and returning guest writer slash actor Joshua Tonks. Their latest film is the full-length feature, The Latent Image, based on their short film of the same name. Welcome to the show. Hi, Terry. Mary Beth. Thanks for having Hi. me on. hey <laughs> welcome back, Josh.
3: <laughs> yeah, nice to see you guys again, and actually see you. I can see you this time. I feel like
2: yes, we've.
3: I know, I know. Last time
1: we didn't even have video we've upgraded. We have upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am so excited to chat with you guys. But but first, let's um let's talk about the latent image. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the yeah, film? Yeah, sure.
4: And um, the latent image. It's a, a horror thriller, um, a gay horror thriller based on a short film that Josh and I made back in twenty, God, 18. Was it? It was 2018, we made it, released in 2019. Um, and then I had an idea of how we could expand out into a feature. Uh, and then, of course, COVID came along, so it kind of took us two and a half years to actually eventually make it, but we made it um, in January last year. Um and then, we've, yeah, we've been released in the States uh, since the 6th of September. We had a, a theatrical release in Los Angeles, and then we were released on um, VOD and DVD. And this week we have a theatrical release in London, and then the day after we're going to be VOD, DVD, um, and yeah, so that's, that's where we are. And the story essentially is about a young writer called Ben, played by Josh, uh, who has taken himself off to a cabin in order to write his new mystery novel uh, he's also escaping from some relationship problems that he's had and one night this mysterious stranger wanders into the cabin almost like something out of the plot of his novel needing help um and ben kind of finds this person intriguing mysterious a bit frightening also a bit attractive and decides to kind of keep him around to help him with the plot of his novel um and then eventually discovers some things about him that he's not sure he wants to know. And, you know, you can tell by it being a horror film what he's going to discover. Um,
1: and that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> Heck yeah. So I I think when we talk, it's been, when, when, did, when did we record with you, Josh? I it feel like, like it like... might
3: have been at the very top of COVID. So maybe it was, was it the summer of 2020? Yeah. Was it around there? maybe just before.
1: Yeah, I feel like that probably was about about then. And I think we talked to you a little bit about how the the idea was to turn this into a feature film. Can you guys talk about the process of of making both like the the uh the short film and then transitioning that into a full-length feature? Yeah,
3: I mean, I can certainly talk about uh the short and then I think Alex probably the the feature was really your baby, wasn't it? So Sort of, yeah. Yeah, when we uh when we sort of the initial concept which is so it's so exciting to see how something can evolve over so much time which is why it's so nice to be back and to be able to sort of revisit with you uh with you guys but when we initially came up with the idea for the short i remember we were talking in 2017 you know we weren't in canada at that point we were still both in the uk and you know we, w- we were talking about something snowy something in a cabin something about a writer uh and you know i I remember like a initial idea for a title was what if and we were very much inspired by stephen king's misery um Mm. but we obviously wanted to give it sort of a queer context and have a queer uh a lead character in it and sort of uh, put our stamp on that sort of um, perspective and then you know as it went on and we eventually made the short it it evolved into, into something else. And a lot of that was um, uh, it came from people's responses to the short as well. I remember, Terry, you wrote a really lovely uh, write-up on it and spoke about how, you know, the, the main character in that, it sort of very much relates to uh, particularly a gay man's lived experience of putting ourselves in dangerous situations to get that sexual thrill, you know, whether that be because of uh, oppression uh, whether that be because of just uh, this almost uh, like queer societal pressure to to behave in that certain way, and so we we were inspired a lot by I think people's reactions to it, and then you know, Alex coming up with, I, I was like, no, I don't think we can make a feature. And then Alex was like, mm, I think we can. So I might hand over to you with that.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, I've always kind of tried to find stories that uh, I really like simple stories. Some of my favorite horror films um, are films like, say, Steven Spielberg's Duel, where you've got the simplest setup in the world. You've got a guy in a car. in a car, he's being chased by a truck. Um, this type of thing, you know, and, and especially when I knew that we'd be making an independent film on a very modest budget with not much time, you know, and, and it's about trying to find something I think that you can fit into that that doesn't feel like you're forcing it into it and you really should be making it bigger, but you just can't afford it. Um, and so straight away, when we made the short, I thought, "Wow, you know, I, I really want to know more about Ben. I want to know more about the man. there 's so many more events I could imagine, because when we made the short, so I remember I kept sort of saying, as like a little rule all along that if we can't do it well, we shouldn 't write it in the script." And seeing as we were making a short kind of self-generated in, in a week, we shot, you know, like between people's schedules and everything when we could fit it in. Yeah. I didn't want us to write in, say, say, a big fight scene or a big murder scene that, you know, we couldn't pull off. And I thought we should keep all that stuff as a, a thing that happens off camera in the short. And then I thought, well, in the future, we can actually show all that stuff now, you know, and really amp it up um and you know originally i did write a bigger version it was prior to covid and i was speaking to some people who were interested in a potential co-production with canada so you know i was thinking all right we're gonna have have some decent money we're gonna be in canada which is like genuinely you know um, you can genuinely be in the middle of nowhere in the wilds and things and um i wrote a much bigger story with uh, you know there are things like there was a, a car with um you know a, a body in it it's, it doesn't spoil anything cause it's not in the film you know it's at the bottom of a, a river and things and you know we were going to do that in a low budget way but we were going to be able to do it uh when covid came along uh we lost that potential canadian co-production we lost mm. the idea of being able to go to canada so i kind of redrafted again um and uh. brought it back to to i think a better place because it was kind of its essentials and also uh i knew we'd have to shoot in england so i kind of made sure that Well, it was very difficult to find a place that looked like America or Canada in England, but we managed it in the end. Um,
3: And a better location, right? I feel like a much better location than what we had.
0: Well, he actually, the guy
4: was a stuntman, the guy who owns the, it was a private estate we filmed on and um, his mother had been a famous actress. He'd worked in the States and Canada as a stuntman. And then when he came back to England, uh he had this cabin oh. built literally to look like a North American cabin with imported lumber and everything so couldn't have been better and because he was in had been oh, in the wow. industry he didn't care what we did like he wasn't frightened of anything you know he wasn't um, one of those people following you around to see if you were going to break something or anything so yeah it was fantastic <laughs> yeah and we all lived there as well for the whole 3 weeks ah, of the shoot and, yeah yeah it, it,
0: no that life wow no
3: that <laughs> I, have life. To, I have to jump in and just say when Alex was saying that he didn't want to write anything that we couldn't film i do remember Talking him out of um, having a wolf at one point. Yes, though, so. I did
4: want a wolf. It was symbolism. Like I, I knew that we could, like for, like, for five hundred dollars, we could have got a guy to bring a wolf, and it would have just stood there and looked at Josh, and it would have symbolized, that, you know, so. the guy coming from the woods. And but no, he he was right to talk me out of it.
3: <laughs> we won't have a real wolf.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I queer erotic. Thrillers, excuse me, we don't see that very often. Why don't we see that very often? Wh- why? And um well, what, what was your like? We all know why, Terry. <laughs> <Yeah>. well, okay, <laughs> I know why. No, why? Why, why Mary that? This is a very queer friendly world that we live in, and particularly right now. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> um, I'm I'm curious about like why a queer erotic thriller, and are you a fan of of that of that subgenre of thriller? Definitely. I mean. I- I mean, I'm gay myself if it
4: wasn't evident, but, uh, you know, so it, it just naturally kind of is something that I, um, I'm going to be drawn to because, it, you know, horror is my genre, you know linked into erotic thriller it's always there you know there's often that tension in a lot of those movies are they horror films or are they thrillers i kind of don't believe in that i kind of oh you know there's a lot of things that i always take it more as horror at first and then if you have to call it a thriller to get certain people to watch it then i'll call it a thriller yeah yeah it just kind of fits naturally and and also this will link into what we're going to talk about later on with the movie I've chosen, but um, and I hope it doesn't make me sound like really sort of pretentious or anything, but I do kind of see myself, regardless of Brexit, I see myself as being a European. I always have. And mm. I kind of do link a little bit more into that kind of European filmmaking sense. If That, again, doesn't sound too pretentious. So I remember, you know, when I'd see, say, Almodovar's Matador, That was like, I'd see that and I'd think, my God, that's a perfect film. I want to make a film just like that. And it didn't feel like this kind of incredibly alien thing. It felt like something that, oh, you could do that set in London. It's kind of a, it kind of just felt very natural. And one of the nice things I have to say about making this film is I felt free of any restrictions of genre or anything really, because it kind of felt like I was making this just for us and no one may ever see it and the world was ending and will we ever be able to travel again and will we ever be able to so i didn't worry about like okay we've got to have these murders in there and we've got to do this structure and we've got to have this setup it kind of felt like uh-huh. i can do what i want to do and uh, <laughs> which you know it was very freeing at the time anyway
3: and um, i think we're in quite a puritanical moment as well right now and so yeah i like the fact that we were a little bit sort of fuck you to that and sort of um, going with what's a little bit more realistic in regarding the particularly gay men's experience, which you know, for for a lot of us and a lot of a lot of men, is incredibly sexually charged, and there are a lot of sexual experiences that do happen in uh, you know not just a bedroom. <laughs> so you know, I think it was that, really? and it, I think it was nice, like you say, Alex, to sort of be a little bit more unapologetic and not make a film with a with an audience in mind, you know.
4: I, but I think also, I literally, I'm very, I've always been very grateful for when I grew up, because I grew up, uh, I was born in the early 80s. And I know it came from one of those families that I heard talking about in a previous episode of yours, the families where you were allowed to watch whatever you wanted. I grew up in one of those families. Um, and I, you know, it was a time where people were really Pushing the envelope in terms of violence and sex, and it was all right there. Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. kind of being a teenager in when was I a teenager? So I became a teenager in the mid to late 90s and being so frustrated by how puritanical I felt the world had become based on, you know, it's like, oh, I'm finally a teenager, and all of a sudden everything's gone. There's no violence and there's no nudity, and there's no, it, it all kind yep. of vanished, and it vanished for a long time. Um, and yeah, I agree with Josh. We've kind of gone a little bit back into that now, but it's just something that I never imagined how you could do these stories without those elements. That if, you know, if I'm going to be kind of true to them. And I've never had a value judgment that, like, says that if, you know, there's a nude scene that that's somehow wrong or. Or exploitive or such of course there are exploitive nude scenes in in horror films we could all name ones that don't seem quite but I don't consider just the act itself as being exploitative necessarily.
3: Yeah, and exploitation isn't necessarily bad either. You know, like there's there's a genre there, there's a style there, it can be very intentional. And also like exploit me, like if I'm feeling if (laughs) I'm feeling myself, like exploit me. Like. Like
2: there is a way to do exploitation. Well, like, just because I think there's like this, there's this thing with exploitation films that you think about it from like the past and like, I spent on your grave and things like that, but you can still do exploitation now and you can, I think people hear exploitation like, oh, no one wants that. I'm like,
0: well, well
2: let's, <laughs> let's revisit that though, because sometimes people do want to be and I think this film exists kind of in that space of like playing with exploitation, but mm-hmm. not as a spectacle but as like a really fascinating concept and i love and i think that more and more films are slowly starting to do that and i want them to because like we're talking about things are so puritanical right now and it's very strange and kind of upsetting and Mm. the gayer and grosser and sexier we can make i was having this conversation at fantastic fest i was like everything needs to be at least 25% gayer, yeah. 25% sexier, <laughs> and 25% hornier. So, yeah.
3: I think <laughs> we tick I, those boxes. I think you yeah. do. I think you do. So, <laughs> yes.
2: I think you do. So, Yeah. <laughs>
4: it's funny actually because um, the editor we had on the on the feature she was am- she is amazing she's a wonderful editor but uh, I remember like where she was there on set with us doing assembly every day and when we the first entire day of our shoot was all in the shower in like the bathroom of the house oh God, but, yeah. and we basically did every scene that was in the bathroom and the shower all on the first day wow <laughs> yeah it was it was quite an intro it, was, it wasn't planned that way it was just kind of how it fell you know happy
2: first uh, and to keep
4: us all you know one right. tiny little not a lot of moves um, it went really well yeah, exactly. oh, yeah. um, it was actually a really great day, way to schedule I it I saw the assembly and she'd done this beautiful assembly of all the scenes but she'd taken out like all the um, more explicit moments um, just, just kind of on instinct and so it was such a difficult conversation like, no, no, no. to say to someone Go can back. you please put all this back in this <laughs> can
2: you, um, can, you uh, uh, can you just like, objectify the men a little bit more in your edit please <laughs>
3: <laughs> it really was a trial by fire first day
2: yeah, that is a trial that is a trial by fire first day but you really get the chemistry mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> yeah i'm kind of grateful that we did that there wasn't any sort of uh then build up or anxiety or nerves it was like True. jay's getting naked i'm making out with will and i'm you know jerking off in a corridor like that day one you know and it rip kind of. aid <laughs>
2: off, it really, off. Truly. <laughs> everyone's naked Everyone's
1: having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. I don't know to uh, sorry yeah. for that. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Well,
2: okay. So, Alex, you said that you but, grew up with a family that let you watch mm-hmm. whatever you wanted. So, mm-hmm. was horror big in your household growing up? Uh, from me?
4: Um, I, no, okay. it wasn't. Like, Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a house with my mom and my uh, two grandparents and my grandparents were huge film fans and i was kind of a child of the vcr through them as well who were like buying everything they could buy on them you know all the old westerns they loved all the old uh film noirs they loved but also, my granddad got me into like uh, 50s monster movies when I was very, very little, and even earlier, like the original King oh. Kong, and, and then things like It Came From Beneath the Sea, and the original The Blob. And you know, I was watching yeah. them when I was like four years old and, and loving them. Um, and yeah, and Same. I got really into like the idea of stop motion and all that whole sort of handmade style cool. of films. Uh, Even films like one that's just coming to my head that I haven't thought of for years, Earth versus the Spider that I loved, where they're playing a rock concert. They bring the spider back to life after they think it's dead and it comes and rampages through the town. So that was kind of my beginning. Um, And then the first one that was, and this is when I was very little, but then I also remember, you know, talking about like the, the nudity stuff. There was this comedy that I loved when I was a little tiny kid that we had on VHS called How to Beat the High Cost of Living with... Uh, Jessica Lang and uh, Jane Curtin and Jessica I've Lange does that. this like, oh no it's not Jessica Lange it's Jane Curtin does like this big like topless scene in the in the money ball where they're trying to steal the money to distract the audience and everything and I just thought of it because there was no problem like in my household with me so there was no like oh turn the tv off or look away or it was just it was just life you know there it is the film we watch it on the tv um so it never really came up this idea of like feeling embarrassed or shy like around my family. Um, the big life-changing movie was Jaws, um, which I saw when I was four or five. I was watching it on my own. It had been recorded off the TV the night before, or something like that. And I really wanted to see it. Um, put it on in the afternoon, uh, and I remember I was like sitting there watching on the on the carpet. Uh, on the carpet in front of the TV, you know, leaning on my hands, and um, when the head popped out the boat, I literally screamed, ran out of the living room into the kitchen where, like, my grandmother yep. was making something, like, screamed to her, then ran all the way back round the house, went back, rewound the tape, watched the thing again, and then carried on through to the end. Absolutely loved it. And that was the film that made me want to be a filmmaker. That was the first time I ever realized there's a person who does this. There's actually a director and a person, and he's the last name on the opening credits, you know. So that means he's the important guy, and it must be him who does it. And and that was kind of where it came from, yeah. so cool.
2: Wow. Wow. So were you easily scared as a kid? Like, it sounds like you just loved all of it, like from the beginning. I I was
4: terrified of life. Right okay. the way through to maybe being twenty, but I was absolutely <laughs> fantastic with anything on a TV or cinema screen. Like loved everything scary, but uh, everything to do with life, no, no, no. Okay, <laughs>
2: okay, that's me.
1: And I, I feel like we we've talked about this, Josh. But um, but what was what was your like history? Uh, just to like refresh, because I mean, it's been a yeah. minute. Yeah. So what was your what was your history?
3: With uh, well, I mean, Alex hit it on on the head with Jaws. To be honest, I think that's such a formative film for so many. Artists, so horror people. lovers. It, it really is the gateway. I think I told the story of me, uh, you know, having a blue bedroom carpet and then running from the door to the bed because I was scared that the shark was going to get me, yes. like <laughs> all of that. Um, and, uh, you know it was, and then you know uh, I think a lot of Disney. You know that that's where sort of my musical theater love came from as well. That other side to the the coin that is me.
2: There's some scary shit in those Disney movies, though. There I don't even, are. I, There are some. We've covered a, a, quite a few of them on the show. Like there are some weird, scary things. Like, remember Hunchback of Notre Dame? That Disney movie. Oh yeah, Hellfire. When he's singing mm-hmm. to the the Hellfire song. I'll never forget that because whenever as a kid I was very confused by that, and it was um. A song about a a religious man trying not to rape a woman. Yeah, really like pretty heavy. I mean, I
3: was I was terrified. This is so gay. I was terrified of um, Cinderella when when the um, the stepsisters are like ripping her clothes off. I'm like no, (laughs) I'm freaking out. Don't be so mean. Why are you ripping her clothes? (laughs) Like That and I was I was also really scared of Ursula the Sea Witch as well in the Little Mermaid. So I'm scared of all these like these, these big divas that I'm now obsessed with. So the
2: drag queens of Disney, absolutely, you were of them.
3: for sure, yeah. All the queer <laughs> you know coded the, characters.
2: The
4: Disney one that I thought was really scary though was um, you know that Fantasia episode where Mickey Mouse is trying to kill all the brooms and they Ooh. keep coming back and they just yeah. like regenerating <laughs> and that that was the one for me from Disney. That
3: is scary. <laughs> and then I mean, I get that. Oh, like, go ahead, Terry. Oh, go ahead i was just gonna no, well no we, we we're still on disney a little bit i was just gonna <laughs> say that and then there'll be the the big creaking eye roll when i bring up scream and that was kind of like the formative movie but that was the one we spoke about when i was on so we don't have to revisit you can listen to that episode you can go back
0: you can go back and listen to that
2: you
1: should have but like that but you,
2: you're a big josh you're a big like scream horror like teen horror yeah slasher head right For alex sure. do you have a sub genre that you kind of gravitate towards or is a favorite of yours
4: well, I did actually, but I began with, so the first horror film, because uh, the film we're going to talk about is not the very first um, horror film that I ever saw. It was, it was quite yeah. a fair way down the line. And I was already a firm, like enormous fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street films by then. They were like my ah, okay. my big sort of, um, let's say like 18 rated or R rated kind of introduction. I, I saw the first Nightmare on Elm Street when I was either seven or eight. And then, and yeah. I absolutely just wow. thought it was the greatest thing I've ever seen, and it's still one of my like favorite movies of all time now. And, and are you? The, is, it, is that
2: your? Is that, is that your franchise? Is that?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah okay. Definitely is. <laughs> See, you and I, Alex, you and I, I have to ask since it is your franchise. Do you have a? Because I ask this anytime someone brings up Nightman Elm Street, okay. I'm going to ask this question. What is your? What is your? If you mm-hmm. had to rank them, what is your favorite? See, I love doing fans?
4: this. I love doing this for like all the franchises, so, but for the Nightman Elm Street series, so the first one. New Nightmare, part four. Oh,
2: you kn- <laughs> That's how you're going to get Terry when you put part four that far up. Terry, I want to in Nightmare on Elm Street 4. I absolutely
4: think it's one of the greatest films. It, it looks incredible. It sounds incredible. I love the character of Alice. It, it's just perfection. So good. <laughs> yes. Alice. And then after that, then three, <laughs> then five, which I love five. I have no problem with five. Even though I have to say, I did grow up with um, the uncut five because we were lucky enough in the UK that it was released fully uncensored here. It wasn't that because now you can't see it. Now, when you get it on, streaming or blu-ray or something it's the r-rated cut but back then you had like the one and it just was so much better uh also the original
1: i've only ever seen the uh, r-rated it it just
4: flows so much better you wouldn't think a few seconds could make a difference but to those scenes which really are the big powerful scenes it doesn't and and even the original nightmare on street when i had it on vhs it was uncut so when um tina lands on the bed there is the big blood splash there isn't that awkward jump edit in the blood coming out of glenn's bed and it's only like now again we can only watch Warner Brothers has only released the R-rated version in the UK, which is a bit annoying. But because just because I always think like it's missing, it's strange. Where's the? It's still to this day. But uh, yeah. Uh, so after five, then we get two, which I do love, and honestly, um, two was the genuinely scariest when I watched them as a kid. That didn't mean it was my. You know, I still preferred the ones I've named, but. The one that kind of, I thought that Freddy was, felt like he was on the other side of the door. And it was like, is, yeah. He's gross. Definitely. He feels wet
3: in that one. Wet. Exactly. And gross. <laughs> yeah.
2: That is such a good way to describe him. He is wet <laughs> in that movie.
4: He's got those orange demonic eyes, you know, with like no pupils or anything. It's, yeah. Um, then Six, which I really, really don't know how to describe um i don't want to badmouth things too much because everyone you know and there's some wonderful people involved with it and we've gone on to things and everything and i'm sure everyone was you know thinking they were doing what people wanted but i i actually saw six in the year it came out in the same year i saw the film we're about to talk about um you know it's like night and day in terms Mm -hmm. of where you know things were things were in horror um and then I've forgotten the uh, Freddy vs Jason, haven't I? So no, I actually put Freddy vs Jason after Freddy's dead, even though only because it, it's not. It didn't seem real to me. It, it seemed like they were. It didn't seem like Freddy. It definitely wasn't the Elm Street house. It didn't seem. I agree. You know, didn't seem like Jason. It's yeah, not not my not my type
2: um so before we get to the film you pick though i do want to know did both of you either of you still get scared when you watch horror movies like have you been scared recently has a movie been able to do that to you as an adult
3: um i don't really get scared anymore um Mm -hmm. i get inspired and i get excited and thrilled and i'll obviously jump like if a jump scare works it works but that isn't anything lingering though i will say um I just watched and no spoilers, but I just watched The Fall of the House of Usher, um the new Flanagan series, and there were there were moments in that towards the end, probably bigger more existential real world things that I found stuck with me. And so maybe it's not maybe it's like what Alex said earlier that I find real life scarier, you mm. know, yeah. than uh, mm. than anything that fiction. I think that's probably why I love horror so much and i very much choose to exist in that reality because i think i think real life you can't you can't top it in how terrifying <laughs> It is. Yeah. So uh, films, no, not really. That's but yeah, true. House of Usher gave me pause for thought first time in a, in a minute.
4: Cool. I haven't seen that yet. I definitely want to see that because I think the planning kind of stuff is incredible. Um, something that does still scare me, even though I did see it when I was a kid and it scared me then, and it still scares me now in, in almost the same way. And I really love it. I think it's a masterpiece that most people now agree it's a masterpiece, but for a long time, no one did, is The Exorcist 3. I think it's such a scary, scary film. I still and need any to
3: see
4: it. time I like watch it i I just feel like this edge to like look around. I just think it's the creepiest thing ever. And I always have.
1: has one of the best jump scares, too. I can't watch too. it. Like,
4: I, can't, even, I remember one time with Josh, we, me and you were watching it. We we're watched it, Canada, yeah. I think the first time and, I
3: watched it was with you.
4: And you were making fun of me because I said, right, I'm just going to, like, not oh, yeah. look now. And, like, <laughs> the whole, I even wanted to put my hands on, on my ears because I knew the sound that would happen when the jump scare happened. And I think that's, like, proper traumatized from youth. But, yeah. <laughs>
3: I was like, how many times have you seen this in like a top one hundred something or other or on you know, every podcast, every, you know, ranking? I was like, still scary, but yeah, for sure. That
4: shape, that shape of that figure with those robes and the height, I just think it's the scary what scariest image that I could ever imagine. And I don't know why. Like I'm also not religious, wasn't brought up with any religion don't have a family that ever went near a church except for a wedding or a funeral, you know, none of it, but I just find it so scary. It's, it
1: is, (laughs) it is frightening. Um, it's, it's actually probably my favorite of the exorcist movies to be honest, but I'm not really a fan of the the, the, the series, but I do love that one.
2: Brad Dorff's in it. You
4: definitely do. Yeah, it's good. Yes. And he's fantastic in it as well. I, you know, it's one of those performances you think this doesn't get nominated for an Oscar. Like it would now, definitely.
2: Okay. On that incredible note, Let's talk about the movie you brought with you today, Alex. Uh, what, what title yes. are we discussing today?
4: So we're going to talk about Suspiria, the original 1977 Suspiria I hasten to add.
2: So I'm sure most listeners are aware of Dario Argento's Suspiria, but for those who are not, we'll catch you up. An American newcomer to a prestigious German ballet academy comes to realize that the school is a front for something sinister amid a series of grisly murders. And goblin yes.
1: music. Oh, yes. And goblin music. The, the goblin. The, the <laughs> I think goblin. it's attributed in here, but but goblin. Yeah. Um, all right. So, Alex, take us back. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you saw this? How did you see this? Paint, give us your horror story. I want to hear why this is your Scarred for Life pick. I'm so excited that it is, but I want to hear why. So, it's
4: 1992, which means I am either 10 or 11, depending on what half of the year. And I had, I was already a horror fan and I was kind of being encouraged in that by, you know, my family, they they would buy me Fangoria magazine when it would crop up in like a bookstore in England because it wasn't that common. Uh, And I'd seen, you know, the early David Cronenbergs and I was really getting into George Romero and I'd seen the three zombie movies and I think I'd seen Monkey Shines. We went on holiday to Florida, to Orlando, you know, on those family trips my grandmother bought me the book the zombies that ate pittsburgh about the films of george romero um uh, which I, i've still got the same the exact copy now it's like this greatest thing um i did more reading of that during the holiday than like you know going by the pool or anything and uh, the <laughs> chapter on dawn of the dead had this huge section about uh, dario argento you know because he'd been uh, the, he's like script consultant credited and he'd helped put the finance together and also got There you go. Got goblins to do the music. And he also did his interesting uh, recut of it. So I'm reading about this director, and they describe him as someone who never lets up in his films and does these bizarre movies. And, you know, if if people think Romero movies are extreme, they should see Argento. And having seen Dawn of the Dead, by the way, I was already in love with Goblin because I loved the soundtrack so much. Also, there was a very important book by Stephen King called Dance Macabre, Mm -hmm. which talked about – it's not a novel, but it talks about – his interest in horror, the things he read, the things he watched. And he talks about Suspiria in this novel as being this, you know, incredible, bizarre film that he thought was fantastic. So one day uh, I had this thing (laughs) where on the weekends, you know, I'd like to save pocket money and I'd buy like a VHS tape or something. Uh, I couldn't buy it because they were always like, you know, 18 or 15 or something, but my family, I give them the money and they buy it from. me. Um, And one day there's Suspiria, this like hallowed title looking at me from the shelf and I grab it and I'm looking at the cover. I can remember the cover was a still of Pat when she's being pulled through the window and screaming and just had the blood red letters, Suspiria. And the back cover was um, one tiny photo of just like the cast. And then this huge review by this really famous British film critic called Alexander Walker, who's not with us anymore, but he was like this really well-regarded critic who'd appear on TV and everything. And uh, the text was just his review of the film. Uh, And, you know, literally like it was out of a newspaper. So anyway, as like uh, to my mom or my nan or something like, Oh, I really want to get this. It's this Italian film I've read about. And they're like, okay. (laughs) Um, And then that night um, I put it on and I watched it and, I remember as it began, um, and we're talking now, so this is, as I say, 1992, so it's a VHS tape. It's not in widescreen, it's panned and scanned, so I'm only getting a third of the image. Yep. And at that time, Suspiria had been censored in the UK, so not by a huge amount, but it was missing things I didn't even know I was missing. But it starts and there's those drums and, and you know, that Salvatore Argento presents and it, it's got that crazy font. And I'm thinking, wow, really straight away, you know, and then that goblin music really kicks in with the little sort of um, la lullaby. La exactly. La exactly.
0: La yeah. La. Um,
4: <laughs> So I'm I'm loving that already and I'm thinking, this is good, this is gonna be good. And then the narrator's voice comes on and tells us about this woman, Susie Banyan, who's traveling and I'm thinking, This is so strange, this is brilliant. You know, he just interrupts the credits and the music goes down as this voice tells us someone's, yep. you know, come into this place. Music comes back up and it suddenly changes as if someone's lifted a needle off a record and put on a different track. I'm like just thinking this is the greatest thing. This isn't what movies are like. This is something completely new. Um, And then the film stopped. Um, And, you know, I, I literally couldn't take my, you know, you just, with the music that follows, she's going through the airport. The whole movie is like imprinted on my mind since then. And I think the big thing about it that really impressed me then was it wasn't like normal films. It wasn't like, we all grew up with Hollywood cinema, wherever we're from in the whole world. And we kind of take that as being the standard to the extent that when I'd see a British film, it'd usually be like, oh, it's a British film. It's about like social drama or, you know, people's politics and employment and this type of thing. And it's all very downbeat and real. And in those days, you know, now British films can be all sorts, but in those days. And here was this film that was doing everything wrong. And I I just thought it was fantastic. It, um, Yeah. And I'll let someone else butt in now, and then I'll tell you more about it.
1: <laughs> well, no, I'm I'm curious. Were there were there moments? What was there a particular moment that that like terrified you, or what do you remember um, about like the the fear that might have come through?
4: I, well, I remember straight from when she gets into the taxi, uh, just being um, sort of this heightened, like not being able to stop watching and just not having any idea what could possibly happen. It wasn't set up like a normal film, you know, so. By then I was used to, um, you know, I'd also seen like the Friday the 13th and loved them, the ones that existed mm-hmm. back then. But you knew the structure, you knew you'd get that suspense music that would tell. And if the suspense music was of a certain type, you'd also know, ah, this is going to be the fake out scare where it turns out to be the cat or the boyfriend or something. And then you would get the one, oh, this is actually the real one now because we've had two of them. So now she's actually going to get it. I'm watching this, this, this girl in this taxi and it's going on forever and it's just music and colour and light and, and shots of water going down drains and, and things like this that don't seem to fit in any way, but they're just creating this huge atmosphere. Uh, and then suddenly you get which, you know, that um, the, literally the word is said yes. as the light from the headlights comes through the trees. That made me jump, I remember that. Um, you know, it's just a word that's on the soundtrack. She goes to that incredible building, You know, the light flickers up on her face. She's all in blue and and, and this orange light as if the building is giving off this light. Uh, And you think, okay, so it's going to be something to do with the taxi driver. No, she gets out the taxi and then all of a sudden there's this other woman and she just leaps out of the building starts shouting to someone, runs off into the woods, putting her hands through her hair. It's just the strangest thing you've ever seen up to that point. And you kind of relax then. And she has that conversation to the person on the intercom Uh, And when she gets back in the car, you do that sudden hard cut to her watching Pat running through the woods from the back of the taxi. Now, I found that terrifying because I didn't really understand what had happened. Mm. It felt like a piece of the film was missing. And she's Mm -hmm. suddenly watching Pat running through the woods with that. It's gone into that amazing track, uh, you know, where they're literally like screaming into the microphone and banging what sounds like pieces of metal. Um, She comes to that incredible building again, another incredible building. You have that great shot where it's, you know, it's the puddle. So it's all in reverse. It's like a mirror. She runs through it. And to get all this stuff, a little VHS tape and pan and scan, I mean, you know, it shows you how well <laughs> the film was made. Yeah. And then, you know, then of course we get to eventually what I think is the greatest murder ever filmed in the history of cinema. I put it above the psycho shower scene. I think the opening murder of Pat is the greatest murder scene ever filmed every single thing about it. And luckily it wasn't too much cut. Uh, if I remember rightly, there's a moment where you have a lot of stabs and everything that were all there. And then there's a moment where she's lying down and she gets stabbed three times, one after the other in the same shot. They took that out. Mm. So all of the montage okay. stabs and everything and the stab in the heart, that was all there. But you didn't get those three, what uh, uh, it must have seemed like two. And it is like when I saw it finally in kota it was like, how many times is he going to stab her? Isn't it going to end? But <laughs> that wasn't there in this initial thing. And I mean, it was everything. It's, you know, it's the color, it's the the cutting, it's the montage elements of it. My favorite part of that scene is actually her incredible friend who's running around the place, screaming, help me, help me, there's a murderer, there's a murderer. And she's moving in that incredible Italian actress way with like far too much body movement, hands through hair, you know, everything's... Um, I don't wanna say over the top because I've never considered these films campy or I really don't. Like I, I consider them hyper realistic. Yeah, exactly. Kind of. Um and it's it just that operatic feel was really what I immediately kind of wanted more of and fell in love with and identified with. Um and so it was a scare, but it was like a great scare. It was kind of a good scar. So in terms of like scarred for life, this is all a really good scar because seeing this film really did kind of change my life in many ways which we will go into him <laughs> because i don't want to just draw. i'll throw you a 50 minute monologue on i'm not mad this weekend
1: uh no it's incredible well josh i'm curious for you um when did you first see this movie do you remember i do actually yeah i
3: think with something like suspiria it's hard to forget your first time yes. i watched it in uh i think i'd It was before, in fact, so when Alex and I were in Canada, I got quite the education on a lot of Italian horror movies, which I actually really appreciate, um... And the, the, there are so, so many of those films are now sort of burned in my brain. And I I, I do get a lot of them confused, uh, but there's so many specific moments that like really do stay with me and really feel like part of that time when we were um, working on the latent image, uh, the short film. But Suspiria, I'd actually seen before. Um, and I just remember I, it was one of those, you know... Uh, trips to we have a store out here called hmv that does cds and mm-hmm. dvds and all of that and i remember it was one of those trips where i would buy just like a slew of of films i'd never seen before and i ended up watching suspiria and i think it was because i'd seen on one of those documentaries like bravo's 101 scariest mm-hmm. moments or something like that um that the opening scene was one of the scariest moments. Um, And I really wanted to watch it because, you know, they'd said, oh, it's inspired, you know, the opening to Scream. It's inspired the openings to, you know, all these other movies. Um, And I was like, well, I've got to check this out. And I remember really liking it, uh, but it not sticking with me until Alex and I got the opportunity to rewatch it again. And we saw it in the cinema. We were we took a trip to Los Angeles and we got to see it on the big screen in the cinema yes it was incredible wow and it was it was then that i think i understood what the film was doing and that the the film is an experience rather than uh, a story uh there isn't uh, a narrative that you need to work out or a mystery that you need to solve even though it almost tricks you into thinking that there might be one it really is an experience and i just i remember the you know the score coming in and out in that opening scene as the sliding doors at the, the is it the airport that they're at like yeah mm-hmm. uh, coming in and out and just thinking that was just masterful and being captivated almost as if I was watching it for the first time so I I saw it for the first time didn't appreciate it and it wasn't until I saw it sort of maybe in its intended context that i really went oh no this is something special and i think the the terror in suspiria comes from its unpredictability comes from the fact that it's breaking the conventions of cinema it's not giving you what you expect um and i think that's where its power lies ultimately
4: i just thought of my scariest moment as well while you were saying that my (laughs) scariest moment in the whole movie still to this day and i actually had a watch of it again while i was waiting to come on to here because i wanted to like fully refresh my memory of it uh, even though, you know, I could act it out for you. But um, it's the scene where they're in the um, uh, constructed dormitory because the maggots have come through. So they're all down in the gymnasium yes. and the lights go out and Sarah wakes up because she can hear the snoring of the directress behind the curtain. And they have this conversation and the camera crew, and there's that an incredible shot where you've got Sarah through the um, two pieces of white cloth and you think it's just the camera and then... At the very end of the shot, the curtain goes like that. So you know, it was someone watching them. That makes no, you know, logical sense because why don't they just reveal themselves there and then? But it doesn't matter. It's, it's so scary. And then they have this incredible, like, hush-whispered faces right next to each other conversation about, you know, that she'd had the snoring the year before or something. And I just find that moment still to this day, so incredibly creepy. So Speria makes you feel like a little child again when you watch
1: it. So you yeah. completely go back into that. It does. It does.
2: That's oh. So I showed this to my husband for the first time last year. So I saw this, I was looking at Letterboxd because I remember I saw this for the first time relatively recently, actually, because my big interest for a long time was like, Asian cinema and like f- extreme French movies and I was like I don't care about a giallo who cares about the 70s um silly silly me <laughs> um that was silly of me and then when I heard that Luca Guadagnino was going to make a remake I was like shit I should probably see the original before I see it and the review I wrote was so funny it was like how did I wait this long to see this movie this is like such a beautiful nightmare experience but I hope the new one focuses on story more which is so funny just like seeing as how that all <laughs> panned out but my husband was watching it and he was like I don't understand what's happening I'm like you're not going to there's no point don't try that's the beauty of Suspiria you don't know what's going on You let it just wash over you and you just lay there and let the vibes happen and that is what is so magical about this movie it is not trying to be anything other than just like look at this beautiful nightmare I made for you and you just Do you love know it. what
4: though? That, it, another thing about it is that was where I discovered that I suppose I don't know how to put it, that I'm like really weird because <laughs> I, I was watching it and I've never found them incomprehensible or like I remember I would, there was one particular time where I I showed this movie to so like we'd have this movie night on a Monday when the TV was bad or something and I'd get to put on a video that I chose and the family would like watch it. And I remember one Monday and I put on Sisteria and i remember like explaining it to my family because they're like what what what's? and i'm like no this is the teachers going out of the school because they're just like shots of the camera moving through a corridor you don't see anyone you don't hear anything but it's come after this talk about how you know they leave the school every night And then at the end of it, like a window opens and you see the full moon. And I'm like, and that's them actually going out. And then now they're going to go and kill the blind man because he's out of the school. You know, so I'm like explaining all this stuff and and, and kind of, (laughs) it it never seemed odd to me. It seemed... You just um, are on the same
2: wavelength as Dario Argento. Like, it's just cool. You just are on the same wavelength as him. That's good. (laughs)
4: Well, there was a thing that uh, I have because Liverpool's most famous horror guy is, of course, Clive Barker, the genius mm, Clive Barker, yes. who um, you know was very inspired by these films and Lucio Fulci films and everything. But his, he did a quote in an interview, and I can't remember which one, but it was like the greatest quote about Dario Argento films. He said that Dario Argento made films like you thought horror films would be when you weren't allowed oh. to see them. <gasps> And I think that's
2: oh, that's exactly it, yeah, yeah that's perfect This movie always feels dangerous. Perfect. This movie feels dangerous watching it even even though you see yeah. it now and it's like the four k beautiful restoration. it still feels dangerous <laughs> in what it and what it is. And I think we've talked about the camera, but it's like the way the camera moves and the way you look at all the girls, especially Susie, it feels dangerous. Like you feel like a predator, like not. Like a like a creepy guy, but like an actual predator hunting its prey, and and mm-hmm. obviously like we find that out that she really is like a prey animal, but it is so creepy the way that you watch the movie and you feel uncomfortable. Like why yeah. do I feel this so? Why do I feel this way watching Suspiria? And then you're like, oh, it's because I'm like in the space of an of a, a scary witch, basically the whole movie, like I'm yeah. watching these women as like sacrifices, and it's so clever. Mm-hmm. I was, i actually was just talking about *Phenomena* the other day, and how I love when Argento makes movies about female characters. I think he's—it re- is such thing, something so interesting with like how the camera views women in, in those movies. I love Argento like this, like weird, crazy, off the rails Argento. I am not as big of a fan of his *Giallo* work. It's all very obviously very good, but this is where like *Phenomena* and *Suspiria*. I think where he like really flourishes when he can just be like witches question mark like I don't know what's going on (laughs) who cares like it doesn't matter and yeah
4: yeah Well, it's actually, um, it's not actually even my favorite Argento. Like, my two favorite Argentos are Phenomena and Opera. See, now we're on the same page because Phenomena
2: is my favorite Argento. (laughs) (laughs) This one's a very close second, but I love Phenomena. Mm. Phenomena is so good. But Suspiria is a life-changing experience. Like, even if it's not Mm. your favorite Argento, like, it is unlike any movie that has been, or perhaps will be, honestly. I don't know if we're going to get something like that ever.
4: Yeah, because, I mean, he was at a time in his career then as well where, because, you know, I've he's a favorite director of mine so like I've read so much about him and tried yeah. to you know find out as much as I possibly could I actually have the owner script of Suspiria in Italian I've sort of read and seen like how much of it is is on the page like it's, uh, it's describing the wallpaper it's describing the camera angles it's not written like a, a standard wow. script it, and it lasts uh, nearly 300 pages holy it's, shit, it's like no a way. bible It's it really is incredible and there are only two scenes that I can remember that aren't in the final film, you know? So it's literally all right there. Um, But at the time he made Suspiria, he was just coming off, uh, and he was making his films to Italy primarily because he was such a superstar. And Deep Red that he just made was one of the biggest box office hits of the year. It was in, like, the top five films of the whole year in Italy, along with whatever Hollywood titles, like Jaws, came out that Mm. year, you know? Um, So he could have done whatever he wanted for Suspiria. Um, And then Suspiria did the same thing in Italy. Suspiria was, like, in the top ten of 1976 just a very different place, I suppose, at the time, you know, so it, it was kind of their normal, um, not normal, but, you know, like mainstream director. You know?
1: Well, Mary Beth, you had said that, that you remember, like, that this movie is is life changing. And I remember not being able to really see it. Like, I, I don't, I honestly do not think it was readily available, at least where I live, anywhere for the longest time. There was like an Anchor Bay release back in like mm-hmm. 2001. But like that, that DVD went out of print by the time I was like interested in Italian cinema and so my first viewing of this, I had to pull it up and I was like, I hope I still have the email. And it was Saturday, the 14th, weirdly enough, Ooh. of October in 2017, because Drafthouse was doing the Synapse 4K uh-huh. restoration on the big screen. So my first watch of this movie was the 4K wow. restoration in a Never. cinema. <laughs> I just remember being blown away by it just because the, the colors, the the, colors. the look of it, it's a very vibey film. It's a very like aesthetic film. And that was my, my first introduction after years of hearing about, you know, Oh, Dario Gento, Suspiria, all this stuff. And like it, it being like such a big movie that I did not really have access to. And so I was really, when I sat down to watch it, at the theater, I was just, mm-hmm. I was, I was blown away by it. And I, it's become like, Favorite of mine, it's not my favorite Argento. I will agree, I think Phenomena, which is not a better movie but is still my favorite of his films that I've seen, is like it's still my favorite. But there's no way of of saying this isn't like a technical masterpiece. The everything from the production design to the cinematography to the music like it is, it is Dario firing on all cylinders, Mm -hmm. utilizing um a huge cast of, well, not cast, but like using the technical people behind this, the, the screen is just operating at the at their highest. And I just, I, I find it so, such a fascinating film that has lingered for, gosh, it came out in, in what, 1977, that it is such a, a huge film still to this day with like, I, I don't think Italian horror in, at least in America, is looked at fondly from that that time frame but like for me it is it's it's so this was like my entry point to finding so much italian cinema that i i find so fascinating Mm -hmm. but it is it's a it's a masterpiece of a film i think you
2: mentioned the score i do have to tell a very funny story of my stepfather and i imbibing um one evening and we were talking about film scores because he's he's a drummer and we were just talking about like music i was like have you seen Suspiria? And he was like, what is Suspiria? I'm like, John, you haven't seen Suspiria. What about Goblin? He's like, who is Goblin? I'm like, you're a musician. You don't know who Goblin is? I was like, they have the best score ever. And I started playing it. And it, when you're not watching the movie, takes a while to kick in. And we were just sitting there and he was staring at me for a full minute. He's like, what? And then the <laughs> witches kicked in. And he's like, w-. and I was like, see? And he was like, what is this? And I said. <laughs> um i don't know <laughs> it was one of those really awkward moments where you're like so excited to show somebody something and they're like this is really weird and i'm just like <laughs> oh like the like the barts like the um homer simpson gave him going back into the bushes like that was me i was <laughs> yeah. like
3: well into the hedge
2: <laughs> sorry you don't appreciate art um
0: <laughs> sorry you have, have no taste, taste. <laughs> <laughs>
4: But going, going back to what you were saying before about uh, Argento's female characters, um, I, I have to say I find I did find then, uh, and still do because you don't kind of shake it off just because you get older. But I found, found them very identifiable. Like I really did put myself in the in the in the shoes of Susie and Jennifer and Betty in opera and. I kind of really did identify with them. I kind of found, especially something that had happened at that exact time, which that I'd actually got, because I came from quite a, you'd say it was a poor background. I didn't know it was a poor background at the time. I thought it was just normal. Then you kind of realize it as you go on through life. And I'd won a scholarship to go to a a private school because I came from an area where it was quite a bit um, rough. And, you know, the school that I was going to go to when I was going to secondary school was kind of, not very well thought of and, you know, they even made a TV documentary about it because of like drug dealing and things like that. So <laughs> it was decided that seeing I was sort of, you know, like the smart kid that, you know, tried to do this entrance exam to get this scholarship. So I ended up going to this school in that exact same year. And uh, I won't name it because I, I, had, I hated it. I had a really good education, but it was like going into this awful military environment where it was like people would call you by, oh, your, last, wow. by your last name and, and it was horrible. And but that was literally the same year that I saw Suspiria. So straight away I could identify with Susie going to the academy. Uh... A couple of, maybe a year later I saw phenomena and like Jennifer was like my spirit animal. The way she'd like to say to people like, No, I'm not gonna shut the window or no, go away. And the, you know, I thought this was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Um and also they're kind of like how you'd like to be in life. They're very stylish and very like, you know, cool and collected and very, you know, in all their situations, they never seem to, you know, they're wearing Armani. It's like, and that kind of thing, you it's know, so... I was a, like a young gay kid. I was into, interested in clothes and interior design. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, I still am, you know, that was all part of it. These weren't like ugly films, they were films where, everything was beautiful and designed and in its place. And, and they had, at the same time, you'd have this like unbelievable violence and things happening. And, mm. but yeah, I mean, they were, they did, they meant a lot to me in terms of, you know, a lot of people would talk about, the wonderful nancy thompson the wonderful laurie strode but you know i was right there with Susie banyan and and you know jennifer Corvino and everything they were they felt really re- fit in in the right it's
2: weird because argento's characters d- sometimes feel shallow but they also felt identifiable and i feel like a lot of the final girl characters i obviously they identify with but they are also kind of shallow like they're an archetype and i feel like at least argento is playing around with like treating these characters like adults you know what I mean I feel like they're not just like pure mm. nerdy girls they're pe- I mean obviously Jennifer Corvino and Phenomena is a child but like you know they're his female characters who are women are like women they're not these like mm. pure creatures and I think again because Italian cinema is pretty sexy and like there's a lot like they're not especially then it's like they're not scared of sex and of nudity and a violence so there's just so much there's more of a maturity to it than i think a lot of the horror that we still see sometimes in terms of not treating female characters as like these more realized beings um and again like yeah. argento's female characters all of his characters are a little bit 2d like we don't get a lot from them but i feel that, like, but he does some work to make them at least feel like human beings, not just like paper doll mm. figures in his films.
4: And Jennifer Colvino is kind of the 14-year-old that you want to be when you're 12 like, watching yeah. it, you know? It's kind of yes. like Stand By Me of the horror genre. I, it's like, I the, was like,
2: why yeah. wasn't I queen of the bugs as a t- fucking teenager? Like, I want to be queen <laughs> of the flies. You joking?
3: And I think the characters are refreshing as well because the rules haven't been set for them. You know, they, they were written at a time when there wasn't the final girl and there wasn't the, you know, the fist bumping moment of the final act where they get there. So they're allowed to be sort of flawed and vulnerable in a way that's very natural and normal. And, you know, a lot of the times unapologetically feminine where yeah. you know, that isn't a bad word. They don't have to take on the masculine traits to be the hero at the end of the story. And they can just be themselves. And it's, 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 you're still getting you're still getting that that thrill and that excitement but without it being so what has now become macho almost incredibly action movie yeah, yeah very scripted very um uh, un- unrealistic like they 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 don't feel like movie characters uh and i think that's probably why they end up being so relatable
4: yeah i miss vulnerability yeah. in the genre so much you know it's it's like a dirty word it's like it's like, you know, if I was in one of these situations, I would be hopeless. I would be falling over. I would be tearing my clothes. I wouldn't want to strike back against the villain because I'm not a villainous person. I'd feel terrible doing it, but eventually I'd have to do it in order to survive. You never see that now. It's always like people have to be ultra efficient in their yeah. reactions to things. And yeah.
3: Everyone's become very good at violence. And yes. Yes. You know, I, I, it's nice to see characters that maybe aren't or maybe don't want to or like get out of situations because of luck or because you know because that can happen as well like and that doesn't necessarily have to mean that it's bad writing or it's bad you know it can it can still be thrilling and exciting and uh just like suspicious and
2: And
4: to have beauty in the genre oh Oh, sorry go ahead
2: i like how you how josh you mentioned like it's not afraid to be feminine because again like these are all women who are dressed like women like they're ballerinas they're ballet dancers they're pretty they're soft They and there's nothing wrong with being soft and I think again like there's a softness even though it's Suspiria and it's fucked up there is still a softness to it in terms of some of the lighting choices the like production design choices especially when the girls are together and I, I do really love that you know I don't know if it's European or what or the 70s or something but that ability to let femininity not be a bad thing And letting it breathe. And I mean, this whole movie is pretty matriarchal if you really get down to it. I mean, there's like a Mm -hmm. couple guys, but they're all Mm -hmm. servants and all the rest, it's like women are running the school, the witches. I mean, it's all about like a matriarchal kind of society and and, like maintaining that matriarchal society if you like really get down to reading between the lines with the random, like the lore that he gives us. And Mark, the, the male, like the romantically male, um
4: that we think might be the romantic lead. He's Miguel Bose, who is of course the now the openly gay actor singer. They've even made a Netflix show about him. You oh, know, yeah. he was this <laughs> sensation at the time for being this kind of um soft, gentle singer, actor. Um, and he's very much portrayed like that. Like, he can barely get a sentence out. He's so shy and stammery around Susie and everything. And, you know, he does that sort of unusual wave to her down, you know, behind the curtain, literally like that. Yeah. And in fact, that's one of the deleted scenes, one of the only deleted scenes, which is in the script, is Susie one that night or one day. I can't remember which. She's like looking out of a window in her room. And there's a garden of the, uh, the school. And he's doing a seesaw naked. And she's looking out the window and she's like, what? And, and he's doing this seesaw naked and he's just doing it as if he's in a and trance and he's cut. doing it faster and faster and faster. And then she's like, really disturbed by it. And then Sarah calls out like, <laughs> Susie. And that's when she comes in and it, they're roommates. But like that, you know, there's things like that, which are kind of implicit in the way he's portrayed. But who knows if they ever shot that? It'd be interesting to
1: see if they ever shot that.
0: Huh.
1: <laughs> Fucking love that. That's huh. a shame. That's a shame so it's it's funny they talk about edits because so last night i could have come upstairs and found my copy but i was down in the basement and i was like oh it's streaming on paramount plus i'm gonna watch it there and it was not the restoration it was in letterbox format but it was cut by i think about eight minutes wow. and i didn't realize this and it has like 20th century fox logo on it it has like so it is like the american release when because 20th century fox put it out here and they were afraid it was gonna be too violent over here so they cut i think like eight minutes is what i found online from it and it has like the suspiria lettering when it's when it's first introduced is this kind of pink fleshy i've seen it on the trailer the
4: american trailer yeah
1: yeah and so that i was like i don't it's been a minute since I've watched this, but this does not look familiar to me. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm watching the first death of of Pat, and I'm like, I think there's more. And I'm sitting here going, I think there's more. And I'm like, I'm I. It's been a minute, maybe I'm just forgetting things. And we get to the point where Daniel, the 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 blind man who plays piano for them, there's a scene where his dog attacks Albert, little kid. That's completely cut out of the movie. Wow. It is literally. Like an intro of him coming up to the to the the house, going up the stairs, and then it is nighttime, and we have skipped the entire day. It goes from night to that to back to night. And I was sitting here going, Okay, I feel like something has been cut from here. Because I specifically remember the boy getting bit by the dog. And so I went I went online and sure enough, I'm watching some rare R-rated cut of the film that is playing on Paramount that it looks pretty good. It's not as like stellar as as the synapse release, but it looks good. It's in letterbox, but it is cut, and it made the movie even more <laughs> weird to watch. Because I'm sitting here going, "This is really even harder to follow." Because why is why is Daniel being killed that night? Who knows? There's no reason for it. It just that whole thing is excised from the film, and it was a very weird watch for me last night. But I I stuck with it because I was like, I just got to see what this is gonna what this is gonna feel like, and mm-hmm. it. It's kind of incomprehensible, some of the things that, that it does in here. And it's not just little slivers of, of gore. It is literally an entire scene is just yeah. cut out of the film. We
4: were always pretty lucky with Argento over here, at least. Yeah, because yeah, uh, Inferno did come out here in 1980. Because I know like in the States, it didn't come out until about 1986 or something. Uh, and the mm-hmm. only bit that was taken out was when the cat eats the mouse. Uh, because of like animal violence laws, because it was like a real cat and a real mouse. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
4: and then Tenebrae came out like almost immediately after Italy in say eighty three, I think. Uh, and they they just cut out the square of blood, but they didn't add that song, and they didn't cut out the Luma crane and you know, it was kind of left alone. And yeah, they they seem to just same with the Lucio fulcis which were really really censored. But they'd almost immediately they'd be out in Italy. They'd come out in the UK. Whereas I know in the States, people had to wait years to see them. And then sometimes they'd re-edit them and add different music and things. But I, th- I think probably just because of proximity, you know, we're like same continent. So it'd literally be just the same company and ship it over and then that's it. So
1: I wanted to talk about one, my favorite scene because it makes, I don't think it makes a lick of sense, but it's my favorite death is um, the barbed wire yeah, I love incident.
4: So I love that so much. I, I think, I, I, yeah, I mean... It, you know, it's like that Clive Barker quote, isn't it? It's like, what would you want to happen if you were going to do that scene? And then how could it could never happen. But what's the type, what's the worst thing you could ever imagine? That's the thing about Argento films. He always gets this thing that it might not be some ultra big spectacle, you know, like being like cut in half or something like this, but it, it's things that you can imagine what it would feel like. And you can imagine what it would feel like to fall into a pit of barbed wire. Um, oh, you can imagine, like in deep red, getting your teeth smashed against the edge of a, a you know a mantelpiece. Like it literally makes you go. Oh. Um, and again, she's so good. Uh, Stefania Cassini is brilliant in the whole film. Like I think she's one of the greatest things in the film. And of course, she's done so many horror films. She's great. Um, and she's still actually like a really well-regarded um, actress in Italy. You now she's on TV all the time. It's really strange to she see was this woman. Just, oh, really, Suspiria in is.
2: a movie called The Goldsmith, that was actually pretty decent. This like weird Italian. I movie heard that, that just yeah. came out that i saw at a festival that's like super yeah. bizarre
4: mm. yeah. i have to look for that one really? but she's she does that amazing like too much too much thing that makes perfect sense but only in an italian movie will someone flail about in the barbed wire as if they're doing the third act of Rigoletto, you know, yep. and it, it just, it's, it's <laughs> horrible and disturbing, but beautiful at the same time. And it looks so great. And, you know, you kind of, you, you move your own body while you're watching it because it's, you know, you, you can't help it.
2: You're like, stop moving. <laughs> just stop. You're making it yeah. so much worse for yourself. But yeah. I mean like, but like, what do you do in that scenario? Like you don't just fall down and let it happen. It's, it is like such a weird thing where you're like, wait, what do you do when you are caught in a room full of barbed wire question mark (laughs) why is there a room full of barbed wire i've watched
4: it with people nowadays who are like why why doesn't she just stand up and like and it's like because they're used to those movies where people are like superhuman and it's not gonna hurt them to fall she's in a nightgown falling into barbed wire what you want she's gonna like collapse it's fine but yeah
3: (laughs) and there's there's a tragedy to it as well i think a lot of the kills in suspiria have sort of like emotional stakes like and this one particularly what always gets me is this like she's like an animal snared in oh. in something and it there's a level of humiliation that comes to it as well and her being so close to survival and having you know run for so long it's it it's it's sad as well you know you you want yeah. her you want her to live yeah. And I think that's what gives the sort of additional weight to it as well as it just being a really cool, imaginative, creative sequence. And I think Argento does that so well in a lot of his films, but this one particularly, there's, they're just so creative. Like you, you couldn't think of a better, a a better way to, to kill someone. You're like, Oh fuck, that's sick. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's great.
4: And that amazing, like, ultra macro slit throat that ends oh. it which was actually missing on my original vhs that i saw uh, it. so they actually took out just that. that bit so the hand would go on her mouth and it went to black there oh no sorry they did have the shot going into her eye but they didn't have the ultra extreme of the slit throat and that's so like i've people i've, I've seen it in the cinema a couple of times and people have laughed at that moment but and maybe you know it doesn't sound very nice like in terms of nowadays but uh, they actually did use like um i think it was fish skin or pig skin to do that effect so i could i always thought it looked oh, wow. ultra realistic it looks like when you cut yourself and you look and you think oh my god and the blood's not there at first and then all of a sudden blood comes yeah. out, and you go oh no i really did cut myself it looks like that because it really is like actual skin that's been cut so that adds to the creepiness
3: <laughs> and if we got the moment with the the uh I'm I'm doing a gesture of through the door, trying to get the latch oh, yeah, up the, as well. It's oh, so suspenseful. Yeah. And she's stacking the boxes to get through the window in this room that just feels like it doesn't exist in time and space. Like it it it's so bizarre and surreal. And she's trying and to crawl up where the light
4: is, doing like half a swastika because like all the Nazi imagery is so important in Suspiria oh, yeah. as well. I, I did get that as a little kid without really fully understanding it because. That, you know, there was that sort of the German beer hall type thing. There was Alida Valli's character who, in my mind as a little kid then, was dressed like a stereotypical Nazi in like an Indiana Jones movie. I mean, she is. She's wearing like yep. the green yeah. like, hat suit or whatever and the, the giant clunky black shoes and she stomps about with her blonde hair and everything. And, and, you know, to find out that was all deliberate later on, it all made, you know, it makes so much sense. You can't miss that from the film. And I think to have this idea of a character who's blind Getting killed in the square where Hitler used to do all his marches. You know, that's like that's oh, like shit. more important yeah. than any
1: plot point or something like that. Holy that's shit, like, I
2: don't think I realised that.
1: Yeah. I didn't either.
2: Holy shit.
4: Yeah, that's right. He chose that square deliberately in Munich. Yeah, and the beer hall. The beer hall was where the Nazis had their like meetings and then they did no all those terrible marches way. in that square where he gets killed. And of course he's blind and you know, and so it it just it
1: fits perfectly. Whoa. When I was doing some like, Googling and trying to find some research on this uh, to see if I could find some interviews, because I think the cinematography in this is just absolutely stunning. And I did find an interview with um, Luciano Tavoli uh, in The American Cinematographer, um, and he was talking about the barbed wire scene. And he says, quote, that that was one of my favorite scenes because Argento let me free to create a color symphony following my only my emotion and taste and he says that's a very rare in the relationship between a director and cinematographer. And he says, looking at the sequence today, I realized I made it in a state of total pleasure, going on shot after shot with my collaborators, almost blindly utilizing the new alphabet of colors that had become our instinctive color language. The red, of course, is the aggression and danger the blood that the unknown pursuer will soon force out of your body with his knife. The blue is the terrifying death sentence already pronounced in a color that accompanies you into the sinister world of death. The delicate orange coloration of the little window high in the wall. Excuse me, of the room is the momentary illusion of safety, a painting done with colored lights. And then there is the shining metallic blue of the barbed wire, like a carnivorous plant that will capture and almost digest you forever. Such a very rich bouquet of gifts for cinematographer. And he says that the sequence of colors was not planned at all. He made it absolutely on the inspiration of the moment. And what a hearing like the kind of intent behind what he was doing at the moment is just, it's so fascinating to like revisit that scene mm-hmm. and see how the whole, that whole sequence plays out just with, with color, which is such a huge, a huge thing in this movie as, as a whole between the production design and the, the cinema tricks that, that Luciano would, would use with like the color filters and whatnot. It's, it's just amazing to me
4: it really is um and when you said about like the orange window there's also that orange doorway that you think is going to be a salvation and it has those really Mm. creepy um i suppose like satanic symbols or something painted on you and you you get them for barely a second but it's just so creepy like all of a sudden and and you know as i say it's like where she's gonna have to go to and she doesn't even notice the you know the barbed wire, and neither do we. Like when you see it now in four K, right. you can kind of see the top of one of the pieces of the barbed wire, kind of spoiling it. But you can understand how someone's in the dark, just like focusing on, you know, the, the lit doorway Safety, in the background. I gotta yeah. get there. Yeah, but you can hear as well how. Uh, the intentions like when you hear them do interviews and things like I could listen to them all day the Italians like talk about these movies it's like there's so much that they've thought about and put into it and you know they're really doing it in that like ultra designery ultra I don't know how to describe it like they're viewing it as 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 a piece of art without making that sound really pretentious like they're literally thinking about what does this bit look like what does that bit look like how does it fit with that and it's it it I just love all that. I think it's
1: brilliant. So I'm I'm curious as a as a huge fan of this movie, what do you think of the remake? I've only
4: watched um this sounds terrible. I've only watched about 40 minutes of it and I really enjoyed that 40 minutes and then I just haven't gone back to it yet it sounds terrible but it kind of it it, you know I enjoyed it I thought this is really intriguing and I like the Berlin setting that's really good and oh my god that's the actress from the fourth man and you know all things like that And, and it just didn't I just haven't gone back to it I will go back to it one day but yeah
3: what what I think Alex is trying to say in in the words of Aretha Franklin is um Great gowns, beautiful gowns. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: exactly.
1: That's gorgeous, literally gorgeous what he said. Gorgeous, gorgeous gorgeous gowns. Great gowns, beautiful gowns. <laughs> What's funny is that uh before this, this we got the remake from Luca. Do you know who's going to remake this originally? Wasn't it David the Gordon? David, Green, David Gordon. I've got fucking a at the on going to shut up. My
2: goddamn horror movies. <laughs> Everything. get your Please, grubby hands, go yeah. back to making the pineapple <laughs> Express go back to your sonar comedies get away
1: <laughs> and Mary Beth, I as I was <laughs> as I was reading this uh, as I was doing some research into it because I was trying to find there was a couple interviews with him and there was one linked on on, or on on Wikipedia but the link was no longer working so I went and did a little bit of research and Mary Beth, you'll appreciate this do you know the reason why it kind of fell apart for Halloween because the industry—no, <laughs> no, no
2: nope—it wasn't. No,
1: this was way, yeah. this is way before. It was because of the industry right there was so focused on found footage. Oh wow! And she he says that us. <laughs> he says, <laughs> I wanted it to be a horror film and a horror film at that time when we were modeling that movie meant you're making paranormal activity. You're making these down and dirty, very gory, very economical movies. So the economic model for a horror movie was not where I wanted it to be to make a 20 million dollar elegant movie. And he said and then the 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 business side of things is that he he had, was trying to do this and then he did what your majesty or high. What, what is that? Stoner oh, fantasy movie yeah, that you yeah, yeah. did, yeah. Your Highness, something like your that. Your Highness, yeah. And it flopped, and so it just didn't go Thank anywhere. Thank you for activity.
2: <laughs> Thank you so mm-hmm. much.
1: <laughs> uh.
4: I don't understand though, like Suspiria to be remade by someone like Quentin. You know, you can you can understand because he too, because he's you know, I, I mean, I, I love <laughs> Tommy by your name. I love Bones and all. You know, it's, it's so he has this point of view, and he fell in love with that. You know, I read the whole story. And, you know, he's a gay director and he was from Italy and he fell in love with this movie in his youth and he's kind of living his tribute in a lovely, fine, but, you know, and it's a beautiful title. I mean, that was one of the things that attracted me as a kid. Like the word is beautiful. You know, it's got this presence mm. to it. But there isn't anything really to remake. Like, it, it's not like um, this narrative that you go, oh, yeah, we could put this modern spin on it and do mm. this and do that. Like, the, you you may as well just... I mean, it's the same story as. Have you ever heard of that like TV movie from the seventies called Satan's Cheerleaders?
3: It's like uh, the same yeah. story mm-hmm. where uh, they
4: realise <laughs> that their school is like a fund for witches.
3: That's so and, uh, funny. Yeah, yeah, but, so, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of is. One thing I will say though about the about the remake is, as someone that went to what was effectively a, a dance school, oh. you know, uh, and actually sort of lived. You know, I went to drama school. I was doing ballet classes and jazz classes with a load of other uh, other kids. You know, in, in very sort of kind of similar circumstances, almost. Um, what I do like about the the remake is its use of the dance as mm. the magic, and I I, I like that. Uh, that's that's a fun element, and I, what I like specifically about that is it's something that wasn't in. Argento's original Um, is that it's the thing the thing that I like most about the remake is the thing that isn't doing anything that we know of from the from the first and um almost links to the latent image a little bit like one of the one of my favorite moments in the feature was something that's completely um absent from the short and I think it's probably the strongest element to it and I um it always makes me think of think of that uh, well, that moment. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I love the dance. You know
4: where you get out of bed and go down the stairs and everything, um, and there's the lightning and that. All the time mm. we were doing that, I was thinking of like the Suspiria type atmosphere. And and when I when you know you did it great every time, but I remember in the beginning I was always like saying like No, go slower, go slower, slower because I yeah. wanted you to get that kind of dancery, like kind of very yeah. elegant type of movement, and then the camera goes with you, you know, as you go down the stairs and everything, and so. I don't know if that was the moment you were thinking of, but that was all definitely in there.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there's yeah, there's a definite there's a definite dance to it, and I remember that direction a lot. Actually, sort of to slow everything down and just make it, especially in that particular moment, it is more dreamlike and absolutely. I, I can see where you would have got the the inspiration there from this, because so much of you know Argento's Suspiria does feel like a dream or a fairy tale. I mean, I know those words get used a lot when people talk about there's almost a shorthand and uh, those words get used a lot, but they, they're, they're used because it is, it is very true. You know, you do feel childlike when you watch it, you know, the door handles being higher and all all, all of those things we've heard a million times when people speak about, um, Suspiria but it's it is it's very true but
4: you know what made me so excited as a nine-year-old I kind of grew up and this is apparently a really common thing amongst gay men I'd had no idea of this I only read it quite recently I was obsessed (laughs) with ancient Greek and Roman myths and legends obsessed with them like I'd read Mm. them on I'd watch the movies of them and I was fascinated by them and I still like tried to come up with stories now where I'm like I want to tell the story of Perseus in the underworld how can I do that in a setting and like I can never figure it out but I just love these stories and when she says in the film, when she realizes if they count the footsteps of the teachers yes, and she love. says that amazing line, it's just like the thread of Ariadne. I was like, <laughs> I thought it was like the greatest <laughs> thing ever. Um, so that shows you what kind of a, like a nerdy nine-year-old it was. Oh, but yeah. there you,
1: go, so. <laughs> you did bring it up. So I kind of let, I want to dive into it very briefly before we wrap up. So um, as I was watching Suspiria last night, I was like, I was thinking back to the latent image and I was thinking back about the dream like feel to that film. And I was thinking about that with in terms of Suspiria was was that kind of an inspiration point for kind of playing with, is this real? Is this a dream? Because Suspiria feels like it feels like we're Alice's we've already like the moment she has landed in Germany, she's already in the, you know, the the rabbit hole, and she has already entered Wonderland in this weird hyper hyper realistic um kind of fashion but it it does play with with dreams as if like it has this feel of is this real is this a, is this a nightmare is mm-hmm. this what is going on here and so I was thinking about that as i was as i was thinking about your movie as I was watching it last night was was there kind of an because it sounds like this movie has been um Suspiria has been like such a important part of your life was that did you ever have that in the back of your mind as you were?
4: I guess it goes back to that thing of realizing that I kind of had a weird way of approaching stories. And that I, I'm, I love that it, for the latent image, I've read sort of comments and reviews and things of people thinking, is it real? Is it uh, what happened to it? For me, it all makes like perfect sense. Not that I want it or expect it to make perfect sense for anyone else. It's fine by me. But to me, it all very much happens, Um, except for obviously if it's someone imagining, you know, because he's a writer. So he sits there and fantasizes Mm -hmm. about moments. But he's only doing that based on things that have actually happened or could actually happen. Um, And so to me, no, it all It all happens. It's like with Suspiria. I never, to me, like a fantasy film, not, not fantasy, but you know what I mean? Like a film that's in another world is something like, um, a Tim Burton film because it's, it, it goes outside the laws almost of, um, I don't know. I was going to say physics. I don't know how to describe it, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's literally all created. Whereas in Mm -hmm. Argento films and Suspiria (laughs) included, I do feel like you could just walk down the road and get like a, a mcdonald's hamburger from that you even see it when she gets off at the airport there's mcdonald's in the background but but still you know people this is what's happening to her and this is how she reacts and
3: that's such a good point about that and it's something that maybe a concept that always scares me is how like uh in real life like a day can take a turn you know you might have just got up and had your cereal in the morning and then you might make a wrong turn and something terrible could happen and i feel that that's what Argento captures in Suspiria that like right around the corner and it might be the corner uh, that you turn every day at your school where you learn where you're you know learning dance or whatever like something really insidious and terrifying can happen and there's no rhyme nor reason that you have any control over Um, and that lack of control is what is it's quite scary and with, with you know with Susie's character she's she's figuring it all out as it happens there's no kind of like you know microfiche I don't even know how we say it moment where she's like figuring out the mystery and all of the, 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 those conventions so <laughs> exactly I mean they're funny but there, there aren't those conventions it's it's just an experience that she's experiencing and so are we well, it's
4: like Ben in Leighton's image like you know he could people have said like oh yeah as if you'd let this person who wandered in and said like i need help and you just like leave them and the i've really thought about this like the amount that how far it would have to go down the line before i'd literally just say to someone get out of my cabin like i wouldn't do that like it would just i wouldn't be able to do that at first i'd feel like i had to be polite polite to to help or you know and then then eventually murder me but you know (laughs) that you can you can imagine (laughs) how that how that could happen, or I
3: can anyway. And it, there's yeah. a level of dream logic, I think, in uh, where not dream logic, but I mean where where dreams and memories and fantasies within the latent image are they're a motif within the film. So and and I know that that's not to everyone's taste because I think uh, you know pe- people watching cinema can sometimes think that you know a dream sequence can be a bit of a cheat. Mm. And I remember having a conversation with with Alex about this and that, like. Well, if we make such a, if we keep it going, if we keep that motif going throughout the whole film, then like it or lump it, it's what the film is. It's who Ben is. It's how he interacts with the world. Like he, he doesn't exist in reality in a, in a uh, standard way. He's He's, he's constantly...
4: Remember when <laughs> she used She's to, like, imagine automobile. the baby yeah. and all this stuff? Yep, yeah, the
3: dancing baby. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that, and I think a lot of that does come from, you know, Argento's work and and Suspiria because it's, because it is so dreamlike and you could pick it apart, but why waste your time doing that? Just let it happen, you know? So that the madness.
2: Out, embracing the madness and letting it wash all over you. Uh, let's, let's wrap up this up and give it a rating out of five. Terry, you're up Sounds first. Good. How many Mother Susperiums out of five do you give Suspiria?
1: Five. I I think I I can't fault this movie. I think this every time I I sit down to watch this movie, I am as I was trying to take notes last night, I just I found myself just sitting there enraptured by the movie and going, oh shit, I'm supposed to be like analyzing this and taking notes to like talk about. And I couldn't. I just I let it wash over me every single time I watched this movie, even though I spent a very good amount of time last night trying to figure out Am I just crazy or am I missing something? Because I feel like everything has been all these like moments have been cut. But this movie is just I I think it is I think it is Dario Gento's masterpiece, whether it's my favorite film of his or not, it's not. But I think it technically it is a masterpiece from the cinematography to the production design to the acting. I think Jessica Harper is fantastic in Mm. this. Just and she gave up a part in 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 Annie to uh to do this. Like that's that's wild in and of itself. But I just, I think this is a fantastic film. I think it is Dario at his best. We didn't really touch on this, but written, uh, like, the, the story idea and the co-writer is is Daria Nicolodi, who we, yes. we love. We, we love Sparkle her her Life. Yeah. So, she's so good. I, there's nothing to, I can't say anything else. I love this movie. So, it's five for me. What yeah, about it's you, it's There's just,
2: there, I don't know. I, what else do I
1: say, man? <laughs> like, it's just, it's gory
2: and... Fucked up, but feminine and soft and beautiful and nightmarish. And it's just such... It's like... I know it's so annoying to say it's a vibe, but it really is a vibe. Like Suspiria is is the beginning of bisexual lighting, I feel like. It is just like that movie Mm. that has shaped all of our beautiful lighting loves in this genre. And it's just top tier. Um, So I'm going to throw for the final word to Alex slash Josh, uh, how many mother Suspiriams yeah. out of five do you give Suspiria? I feel like I know the answer, but
3: yeah, go ahead, Al. I,
2: I think it's mm, two. No, definitely five. I think, um, I've, I've
4: never, ever, no matter how much, you know, I'm I'm now a filmmaker and no matter, I, I can't stop believing in the film when I watch it. I don't sit there and think about where was the camera or how did they do this? Like anytime I watch it, I completely go into its world for that hour and a half. And it still scares me in the best way possible. Um and and it almost doesn't feel like a movie. It you you can't imagine how they did it. It feels like yeah. this thing that exists like this like an experience like you said before. So definitely five.
3: What about you, Josh? Yeah, yeah. Um five for sure I mean I could be I could be petty and give it four and a half but I'm not going to and I think the reason being like it's you know I'll I'll be honest like uh this particular style of film isn't my favorite I know Alex and I have had hours and hours of discussions regarding this topic but you can look at this film objectively and you can you can see that not only is it incredibly influential in cinema but it's it achieves everything it's setting out to do it, it it is it's perfect in its execution there isn't really a miss that that happens with it you know it's um it, it evokes the feeling that it wants to create and so for that you can't you can't fault it you can't really critique it so regardless of your own sort of subjective opinions i think objectively it's it's got to be five for sure hell yeah
1: Well, thank you, Josh, for coming back. And thank you, Alex, for for joining us to talk about Suspiria. Thank you. Where can our listeners find both of you? And the floor is yours to plug away. After you, Josh. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah,
3: (laughs) you can find me on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, x oh god horrible hate it but instagram twitter which i'm going to continue calling it just that uh letterboxd blue sky um and it's all my name at joshua tonks
4: and you can find me on instagram uh, i am on twitter but i hate it so much i never go on it and i never interact with anyone but uh, you can find me on instagram <laughs> as abiral3 and you can also yeah. find the film at latent image movie and um, the film itself, you can watch it. It's on um, Apple TV. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on Deku. It's on Google. Yeah, I was going to say it just premiered on
1: Deku. Yeah, right? Yeah, just yesterday. It yeah. Did yeah. Um, uh,
4: and if you're in, if you're listening from England, and I don't know when this is going to go out, but if you are listening from England, we are on the Prince Charles Cinema, just off Leicester Square, on Sunday the twenty second at six fifteen with q and A. Q&A. And then after that, we're going to be on every digital platform as well.
2: Um, Well, it's a noisy friend from us, but we want to hear from you. (laughs) What was your experience with Suspiria? You can let us know by sending us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us on social media. I am at MBMcAndrews on Twitter and Blue Sky and at MB.McAndrews on Instagram.
1: And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. wherever there's social media still. <laughs>
2: and of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter and Blue Sky at Scarred Podcast and on Instagram at Scarred for Life Podcast.
1: And please don't forget to review, rate and subscribe. And if you want to help support us, we do have a Patreon.
2: Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out
1: there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. <laughs>